Hello, welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast. And this is, we're coming to the end. Cold War, 1950 to 1991. Where the world was divided between countries allied to the United States, countries allied to the Soviet Union, and the few countries that made up the what's called the non-aligned pact. But really, favored one or the other. So we have the U.S. versus the Soviet Union with Europe in the middle. In 1945 and afterwards, the Soviet Union, the USSR, had taken over Eastern Europe. The Soviet Union then goes on to support revolutionary groups. It doesn't take the Marshall Plan or allow any of the countries under its domination to accept the Marshall Plan. In 1949, Mao Zedong wins in China. We've talked about that. Bringing up the question in the United States about who lost China. The, United, the Soviet Union also gets the atomic bomb. So suddenly, within just four years, the United States, who had spent billions of dollars in 1945 dollars to figure out how to build a nuclear weapon, no longer had a monopoly on it. In 1950, North Korea, with Soviet support, invaded South Korea, and American and Western troops were again invading Asia. The U.S. and USSR, and this is the beginning of proxy wars. We'll see it again in Vietnam. We'll see it again in Afghanistan and a few other places where the U.S. and the USSR fight, but without their troops fighting each other. So the North Koreans were supplied by the Soviet Union and later by the Chinese, while U.S. troops actually did the fighting to help South Korea. The same thing will happen in Vietnam. But in Afghanistan, the United States gave money, arms, weapons, missiles to Afghani troops, Pakistani troops, jihadi groups, in order to fight Soviet troops. So the... the kind of number one directive of the Cold War is Soviet and American troops should never shoot at each other. That's going to be bad for everybody. If they actually are in the same war at the same time, bad things will happen. In 1952, the USA develops the hydrogen bomb, and now the, the Soviet Union develops the hydrogen bomb in 1953. It had spies on the inside, and they have, remember, the United States is the richest country in the world by, like, far. They're the only country not to suffer, the, o the only major economic group to not suffer any kind of disruption from World War II. And yet, they're only a year. The United States is only a year ahead of the Soviet Union, which was devastated. 20 million people were killed. Um... The eastern third or eastern half of uh, the, the Soviet Union, the European part of the Soviet Union, was completely uh, torn up by the war and destroyed. Uh, there is no, if you just looked at the numbers, there is no way that the two should be so close, and yet they are. The result of this is what's called the mutual assured destruction, the MAD theory. The idea that I will have so many bombs... 
that I could destroy you, and you will have so many bombs that you could destroy me, which means we probably shouldn't get into a war. You add to this what became the nuclear triad. Well, what if they try to wipe out my nuclear missiles? What if, they, what if the Soviet Union actually succeeds in wiping out all my nuclear missiles? Then, we're, then they could bomb us and we can't defend ourselves. So what the nuclear triad was, was to have three kinds of nuclear weapons on bombers, on ICBMs, the rockets, the missiles, and then on submarines. And the submarines are really the game changer there. And the idea is you can knock out one of them. You might even knock out two of them, but the likelihood of knocking out all three is almost impossible. And so you have different kinds of nuclear weapons developed for different type of delivery systems and different kinds of wars to cause different kinds of destruction. Now, the submarines are the game changer because you don't know where the submarines are. In fact, if you read some Tom Clancy novels, he'll talk about how nobody knows where some of the nuclear submarines are. That the idea is they, 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 they swim through the oceans and every couple of weeks they pop up, send out a signal, say, hey, here we are, and then they disappear again. The idea is that in case of a nuclear war, they could pop up near the coastline of the Soviet Union, Union or the United States send off a missile, nuke New York or St. Petersburg, and be gone. And you would have about five minutes of warning. Ultimately, what the hydrogen bomb does is show that you can't survive a nuclear war. Up to this point, there were still a lot of arguments of how, who could win a nuclear war. And there'll be arguments after this of who could win a nuclear war. But the hydrogen bomb is so destructive that it really kind of cancels that. In 1963, we get the Cuban Missile Crisis, the 13 days in October, where it looked like, it really looked like the U.S. and the Soviet Union were going to go to war over Cuba, and that that war would involve nuclear weapons. Castro wins in Cuba against a U.S.-supported dictator. And what he does is nationalize the foreign businesses, which pisses off all of the groups that all the industries, casinos, uh, tourism, that owned uh, uh, pineapple and banana companies, that owned a lot of the land. Cuba was an independent country, but it was for all intents an American economic colony. 80% of its land was owned by American corporations. Or American citizens. Most foreign exports exports were done by U.S. businesses. It was imperialism without the ownership. We talked about imperialism, how you had to send armies and go conquer places. Cuba was imperialized economically without the American cost, which also means without uh, the American worry about what was happening to the society, without any of those controls. And so what Castro does is democratic. It's, we're going to 
liberate the land for the people. It's a socialist revolution. Uh, it is not atypical of what happens in lots of the countries in Latin America, in, in Africa, in East Asia, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. The U.S. reaction was an economic boycott and the Bay of Pigs invasion, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion where the CIA got a bunch of Cuban mercenaries and sent them to a beach on the Bay of Pigs where in order to like overthrow Castro, and they were slaughtered. Uh, Castro scared that the Americans, the United States, will invade Cuba and overthrow him, goes to the USSR. And the USSR says, hey, you know what? We have, the Americans have put nukes in Eastern Europe, uh, in Western Europe, and in Turkey. So let's see how they like it. Let's put some nukes in Cuba, which is 90 miles away from uh, Key West. And when that comes out, it freaks out everybody. Everybody freaks out. Is there a nuclear, is there going to be a nuclear war? Is there going to be a blockade? Is there going to, are we going to just invade Cuba? The idea that in a democratic United States that the Soviet Union would have nukes in Cuba was intolerable. You couldn't have it. So some, something had to happen. And that's the 13 days. And... There's a, there's a large book I have somewhere on a bookshelf of uh, all of the transcripts of the executive generals, uh, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, talking about what should we do? How do we handle this? The generals wanted to invade. They wanted airstrikes and then an invasion. And other people said, wait. But the airstrikes, what's the likelihood of the airstrikes destroying all of the nukes? And they're like, well, we'll get like 75, 80% of them. And, that, and they go, well, that means there's 20% we can't get. And like, that's probably right. That's why we have to invade. It's like, but what are they going to do with that 20%? They're going to nuke something. And there was the problem. They're going to nuke Miami. Nuke Houston. So... What was decided was a blockade, which was totally illegal. A blockade, an economic blockade. You put your ships around an island and around another country to stop trade coming into that country is an act of war, as old as ancient Greece. But that's what the United States decided to do. It wasn't quite a war, and the idea was we are going to challenge Soviet ships coming to Cuba and, quote-unquote, inspect them to see if they have nuclear weapons on them. And this is the standoff. And it scared everyone. When we talk about two minutes to midnight, here it is. And at basically the last day, the day right before they were going to have contact between the American ships and the Soviet ships. The Soviet ship Poltava turns around. It got orders back from Moscow, from the Kremlin, you have to turn around. The importance of that is the idea that the USSR, the Soviet Union, and the USA cannot go to war. So we'll make an agreement. Eventually we'll take the nukes out of Turkey, 
They'll take the nukes out of, the Soviets will take the nukes out of Cuba, but basically we agree we will never invade Cuba, and we haven't. That was basically the deal. You take the nukes out, we won't invade. And that was done in a back room somewhere, probably in Vienna or Geneva, where everyone sat down and said, look, we can't have a war. We're going to mur we'll murder everybody. We'll destroy the world. So how do we work this out? You can't have nukes in Cuba. And the Soviets, the Russians said, great, fine, but you can't invade it. And you got to get your nukes out of Turkey. And we said, yeah, fair enough. And there you go. Now, there's a second thing here that's important. The ship was called the Poltava. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but it means a hell of a lot to the Russians. And it means something to me as a Swedish historian. Poltava is the first great Russian victory against Western armies. In 1709, after a series of victorious war, in 1700, let me start over. In 1700, Denmark, Poland, and Russia, the Russia of Peter the Great, who's not yet great, but it's just Peter Romanov, invaded Swedish territory. And the Sweden of Charles XII defeated all three of them, smashed their armies, one after another after another, invaded Poland, took over Danzig, which is Gdansk today, invaded Denmark, absolutely conquered it, got a peace treaty, and in 1708, at the height of his power, 20-year-old, 25-year-old Charles XII decided, I'm going to finish the Russians too. I broke Denmark, who we've been fighting for the last 150 years. I finally have, we finally have gotten the conquest of Poland, we, we've been trying to get forever. I have accomplished what my grandfather, the guy, Charles X, who I do my dissertation on, I accomplish his goal. The problem is, is this is massive Russian country, Slavic Russian country. And what we have to do is break them up. We have to go to Moscow and end them as a threat to us. And so he invades Russia. It doesn't go very well. The winter is terrible. And the Swedes say it's cold. Now the Swedes are used to cold. And even they are, it's cold. Allies who promise to show up don't show up. Supplies that are supposed to show up get attacked by Russian guerrillas in, on, the, on the steps. Uh, this, much of the same stuff that will happen to Napoleon and to the Nazi German army later on. Much the same stuff. And then there's the Battle of Poltava. And the Swedes lose. And the Swedish army collapses. And from this point on, the Swedes are kind of done as the great power of Northern Europe, which they had been for 150 years, and which I will do a whole podcast series, a new a bunch of shows coming up on it. But Poltava is the great Russian victory. So to send a ship named the Poltava to go and break a Western American blockade is soaked in symbolism. 
So the fact that the Russians turned the Poltava around is symbolically an embarrassment. This was going to be their great victory. This is going to be the symbol of the victory they had in 1709. But the idea is we cannot go to war anymore. War is too destructive. So remember, everything has symbols to it. Everything, nothing is just what it is. Everything is something else. Even the names of ships matter. So what you get is proxy wars. The U.S. and the U.S.S.R. fight without fighting. In the 1960s, it's the U.S. and Vietnam. In the 1950s, it's the Arab-Israeli wars. The United States supports the Israelis. Most of the Arabs, because of that, most of the Arab countries go to the Soviet Union. In the 60s and afterwards, it's India versus Pakistan. The United States will support Pakistan. The Soviet Union will support India, which is weird because India is a large democracy. But that's the way it went. Uh, in the 1960s, it's all over Central Africa, Congo, Ethiopia, uh, the Sudan. In the 1970s and 80s, it's the Central American Civil Wars, the Sandinistas, it's Nicaragua. And in 1979 to 1989, it's the Soviet Union troops in Afghanistan. Interventions in civil wars are not like World War II. We are not sending huge amounts of troops. It's the other side floods the zone with weapons and more technology. Um, the Soviets sent anti-aircraft missiles to Vietnam, North Vietnam, to protect it from American bombers. This is how John McCain gets shot down. Uh, American, the American CIA sends shoulder-mounted rockets anti-helicopter rockets to the jihadists in Afghanistan because they were being attacked by Soviet helicopters. Ultimately, what happens in most of these cases is a stalemate and a super high cost. Billions of dollars are spent by the United States in Vietnam. Billions are spent by the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. There are lots of casualties on all sides 58,000 Americans in Vietnam, but some 3 million Vietnamese. 3 million? 1 million? It's millions of Vietnamese die in the 10 years of the war. All of this leads to social and political problems. The 1960s in the United States has anti-war protests, has riots, has race riots, has... People think the United States in 2017 is coming apart. It has nothing what was on, what was going on in 1969 and 1970. Um, this is true in the French as well. This is true uh, in the French in Algeria. The war goes so badly that the French army actually tries to attempt a coup to overthrow the French government because it felt the army felt like it wasn't being supported enough. So it actually tried to invade France and overthrow the, the Fourth Republic, the French Republic. Uh, to save the Republic, Charles de Gaulle, the great hero, the great anti-Nazi fighter, had to come out of retirement to kind of put a stop to this. 
It's like um, uh, Washington coming out of retirement for the Whiskey Rebellion. It's it's you, you bring out someone who, who who has such stature that basically acts like dad. He says, stop it. And the Fourth Republic collapses and you get the Fifth Republic, which is what we're currently in in France, where you get a, a very strong president because it was they said to de Gaulle, save us. The military will listen to you. Save us. The U.S. in Vietnam had 58,000 killed and the entire 60s social rebellion that was attached. It starts with civil rights, which is domestic, but then you get the college anti-war, you get um, the Kent State, you get uh, the social rebellion just builds and builds and builds. In the USSR in Afghanistan, you have 15,000 killed, but by 1989, the Soviet Union is breaking up. They are no longer willing to spend the money to hold on to Eastern Europe. And so you get the end of the Warsaw Pact symbolized in the fall of the Berlin Wall. And by 1991, the USSR ceases to exist. It breaks up into 15 different countries. So that is the political part. And that's where we're going to end. In our next episode, we're going to talk about economics. Thank you very much.